You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast. An independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 234. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Eisen, Eisen! How are you guys? Well, not bad. I'm good. Yeah, but I just came from a, a Stammtisch, actually. Stammtisch? Stammtisch? What, what's that? It sounds lovely, but what is it? Yeah, it's a German word for a round table. And of course, we can't really do that right now. It's just a meeting of regular members of the um, Skeptic in the Pub Cologne chapter, pretty much. We can't really do that in person right now. So we did it on Zoom and it was really nice, actually. Mm. So good. Mm. It's a good way to stay in contact. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So um, is it what other country skeptics call uh, skeptics in the pub social or something like that? Pretty much. Yeah. Do you drink that much? Oh, you can. You don't have to, but you can. <laughs> <laughs> optional. Drinking is optional. optional. optional yeah. Optional <laughs> drinking. Well, good, good beer is usually available. Uh, around. In Cologne. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there there was lots of it. Yeah, and in, if you do it online, you, it's of course bring your own beer. But apart from that, yes. And uh, what's been going on in uh, Sweden lately? Uh, Sweden, uh, don't know so much about Sweden actually today. But I have been following uh, part at least of the Nexus conference in uh, New York. <gasps> Because that's also online nowadays. Yes, and it's available for a month, right? If you buy, it's a available ticket. for yeah. a month. You can still you can still register. It's the, it's not very expensive. It's twenty five dollars, and then you can see the whole thing for another month. It, there was a quiz show, extremely funny and very very good production value. Wow! I don't know how they pulled that off. It was really. With green screens and stuff, you have to check it out. It was it was wonderful. Mm. And then I'm still I have to catch up on some of the talks from the following day with the more serious parts. I did see Richard Weisman's talk, and of course he's always very very funny. <laughs> and you know, just that would be uh, worth it. And uh, there are others as well that I have to catch up with. Mm -hmm. Good. I actually bought a ticket, and uh, I intend to watch all the talks. So this is why I'm concerned with how long it will be available. But I, I, I believe it, they said it, it would be for 30 days or so, yeah. like a month. Yeah, yeah. but you can... So I can still have time to catch up. You can up. watch it an hour at a time and then you can... Yeah, so that's fine. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, you don't have to watch it no. unblock. <laughs> Looking forward to it. I think the whole thing, including the quiz show, I think it's about eight or nine hours maybe mm. so it's still some things to sit through but well worth you it you can binge watch it <laughs> yeah you could binge watch it mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah and it, it's actually really cool because i think now that we all got a bit used to the pandemic situation everybody is producing content mm -hmm. that's how i feel because for the german skeptics there's also heaps of online content right now i had the feeling that the gwp blog was almost uh, exploding just by naming everything that was going on because there's for example a new um, podcast episode by the german podcast nachgefragt about climate change there are new online lectures by Cortices, that's an institute for popular science. They are talking about neuroscience. And there's a web talk happening soon with Norbert Aust about medicine facts and fakes. I think Norbert Aust was also on the podcast, right? Yes. Yes, we've met him at, le uh, at 
at least well, more than once, I think. I think at least twice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think he was in uh, in at the ESC at the last one. He was, yes. And he's a prominent figure of uh, information Netsferic Homeopathy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, and uh, he's he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Yes, and yeah, very active. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's good. Lots of content to look out for. Definitely. But what you're promoting here is all in German, right? Yes, that was all in German. But of course, there's also a lot happening outside of Germany. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, the skeptics in the pub online talks are still happening every week, for example. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are. Yeah, every Thursday, is it? Every Thursday, seven o'clock p.m. UK time. That's eight o'clock for most of us other Europeans. Yes. <laughs> mm. But something else happened last week. I don't know if you caught that on the news. But a very promising thing has been started in southern France, actually. It's a big power plant. Mm -hmm. Have you heard? No. So well, 14 years ago, in 2006, it got the green light. It's an international endeavor. It's an international kind of collaboration that it's uh, being built in. And it's a nuclear fusion reactor. A fusion reactor? Yes. Ooh. We hear a lot of people, especially Bob Novella from Skeptics Guide to the Universe, and <laughs> yes. that comes to my mind when fusion reactors come to the table, because they talk a lot about how fast it, it might be feasible to actually use them to generate electric power. And this is not going to be built to generate electric power for the power grid. It's an experimental thing. Yeah. But this is the first of its kind. So this is happening. So nuclear fusion so far has been either produced in the form of a bomb, <laughs> in the H-bomb, mm. which is very destructive. So don't recommend yeah, anyone. Don't try that at home, folks. Don't try it. <laughs> don't try it at home. And a lot of people keep bashing uh, our poor Hungarian uh, physicist, uh, Edward Teller, who's considered the father of the H-bomb. But it's basically an atomic bomb. It's a nuclear bomb combined with a nuclear fusion so the, the atomic bomb provides all the the environmental necessities that is required for the age bomb to go off and that is very high temperature like millions of de degrees we are talking about and very high pressure and uh, that's what it's difficult to contain within a power plant so that's why so far it's only been achieved in very small quantities and it's very small size and now in France it's being built and according to the researchers who talked about it the experiments will begin in December 2025 mm -hmm. and it should reach its normal output levels of electricity that it can be generated with it I mean not for the power grid but for experimental purposes by about 2035 wow so it's very promising it is if that happens but it's difficult so it, it, is it difficult. takes a long while it will be many many decades before we have that yeah yeah, yeah. fusion is what's happening in the sun normally right right <laughs> yes and uh this uh thing will generate about 150 million degrees celsius wow and containing that is what's difficult so you have to magnetically levitate the whole thing in order not for it not to touch anything because the moment it touches something it goes away because it's just that high temperatures nothing can actually bear mm. so i'm really excited about this to be honest yeah it's a ray of hope if 
you look at like the coal industry and yeah. everything that's <laughs> happening so yeah the thing is we need it now we can't wait until yeah. 2050 or whatever yeah we need it yesterday <laughs> yes yeah it, it's running behind schedule and it's really expensive it's like billions of euros but it's an international uh collaboration and it's happening in europe yeah so i'm wondering how many different conspiracy theories will pop up around that when when it starts operating or they they start experiments and they would say that uh the moment that it it will be turned on the whole earth will disappear something like that this is something along the lines of which i expect something to come up yeah similar to what they said about the large hadron collider in 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 switzerland yeah exactly yeah yeah there's a german netflix show um that is pretty much around uh, a nuclear power plant so uh, yeah, I feel like if somebody who watched that could totally be inspired by that and then say like, oh yeah, the apocalypse starts mm-hmm. <laughs> around the fusion. Yeah, so on on the one hand, it's a very cool step forward for science. But on the other hand, it's even more field for science deniers and pseudoscientists and all that. But yeah, we'll be there to talk about them too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this week we have a lot of current things to talk about, so I suggest we move on to discuss all those. And to start with, I'd like to invite you, Onika, to talk about something with relevance to this week in Skepticism. Yes, so this week is the anniversary of a pretty hard thing that was um, declared because on August 7th, 1948, Luzenkoism, I hope I um, pronounced that right, but yeah, Luzenko um, and his theories, it was declared that his theories are pretty much the only theories that should be taught in the USSR. And I'll just explain that a bit, because that was a political campaign led by Luzenko, also supported by Stalin. And it is against genetics and science-based agriculture. So biologists and scientists were dismissed, imprisoned, or even executed during that program. And the crop yields in the USSR actually declined. He caused a lot of famines. A lot of people starved. And here you can see what if you declare science and modern genetics as the enemy what can happen to the people mm-hmm. yeah that's that's not how you science people yeah exactly no. <laughs> by decree and uh, dogma yes so it's a bit of a jarring example for this week in skepticism and why we need skepticism well it was pretty easy for him to convince stalin who had no scientific background whatsoever he was not even highly educated he was a very simple minded person when it came to scientific knowledge and the world of science. So yeah, Lysenkoism is was a dangerous thing to go through. And uh, I remember seeing sources saying that millions of people died as a result of the famine caused by this stupidity. But even if just a couple of thousand or a couple of tens of thousands of people, it's unbelievably painful to just think about it, how these people could have lived had it not been for stupid leadership yeah definitely i mean the thing was actually that i i read that crop yields were already going down and they needed a solution Mm -hmm. and then they said genetics are the enemy and genetics are actually pseudoscience and um that's where it like really started to go downhill Uh, to me actually it's absolutely unbelievable how in the soviet era in the soviet union how people really believed in the system and how that the soviet system can deal with anything that the declining West cannot. So all the challenges 
they expected to solve right away. And yet they weren't the ones who could send a person to the moon. And they were the ones who were running those potentially dangerous kinds of uh, nuclear power plants. Yeah, not to mention <laughs> the H-bomb. The H-bomb? They did. They exploded one H-bomb, I believe, I don't remember the details with it, which was so much more powerful than they had expected. So um, yeah. a lot of people got hurt in the process. But they yeah. did send off Sputnik, so... <laughs> yeah, and that kick-started the space race, which uh, yeah. eventually resulted in even boots on the moon, which is the, cur- <laughs> <laughs> the current agenda. And as far as I know, the Sputnik shock also triggered whole PISA studies and also educational reforms in Germany, funnily enough. Right. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Interesting. Anyhow, thank you very much for a little bit of science history and pseudoscience history, Annika. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And uh, I think it's time for us to move on to the moment when Pontus starts poking the Pope. Mm -hmm. Be gentle. Yes. We, we have talked before about Francis cozying up to the Chinese government. Uh, what the deal is with that is that Francis wants to prolong a provisional two-year agreement that lets him have a say in how the Catholic Church is run in China. Because before that, the Chinese authorities took all those decisions, appointed bishops and stuff. Amazingly, for a atheistic system, I guess. <laughs> Uh, although they are rather spiritual in, in, in China as well, in different ways. Uh, this is also a big deal for China. So this no- negotiations are very hot and so hot, in fact, that the US cybersecurity firm called Recorded Future have found that the Chinese government have infiltrated Vatican computer networks, including the Catholic Church Hong Kong-based representative. So they're hacking into the Vatican computers, uh, probably in the Minecraft computer that they had from (laughs) some episodes ago. (laughs) The servers? Yes. (laughs) Wouldn't that be funny if they hacked that one by mistake? And they, they, yeah, well. (laughs) But uh, seriously, I'm guessing, of course, that they want to have inside information on the ongoing negotiations. And those are getting to uh, a finish here now in September. So it's getting a bit urgent. The Chinese authorities, of course, have denied the whole thing about the hacking, I mean. And the Vatican has made no comment on it either. Probably, well... I guess it's embarrassing, for one. <laughs> and and also, they probably don't want to disturb the sensitive relations now. Uh, but I think it's fun to imagine this 007 type of infiltrations and counter-hackings going on. And I hope Francis is sending his best undercover James Bond wannabe cardinals to China to fight back. <laughs> imagine a James Bond type of character with uh, the long outfits yes. that priests wear. Yes. <laughs> yes. Or lo- lo- looking- All I can see is Snape, Professor Snape. <laughs> Professor Ooh, Snape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's he's not the kind of guy who brings women to the bed all the time. Not really. No. But he has long robes. <laughs> yeah, who knows? All right. <laughs> Speaking of women, there's another topic this uh, week here. Um, and that's something we've also mentioned several times before, is the misogyny in the church and how Francis isn't very open to female participation, even though he sometimes makes statements that try to give another picture. 
There's a quite new challenge for him now, coming from France this time. Seven women in France have together filed for permission to be appointed into various roles in the church, such as priests and bishops and other roles. And the first application made by a woman called Anne Soupa was even bolder. She put her name forward as the next Archbishop of Lyon, which is vacant since March because, of course... The cardinal there, Philippe Barbarin, I think his name was, had to step down after sex abuse allegations. Juicy stuff. Uh, but this group of seven women, they call themselves Tout Apotre, which means all apostles. So I guess all of us can be apostles. Uh, and um, they have called now for a group meeting with the Vatican ambassador to France, an archbishop called Celestino Migliore, mm -hmm. to discuss uh, the positions and on, on these demands that they have. And this is a tough challenge for Francis. Uh, he hasn't, of course, commented on this whole thing. He's leaving it to his ambassador, but he is the one behind the scenes, I'm sure, instructing the ambassadors on how to act. And so far, they seem to be trying to avoiding a meeting with the seven women together because I think that would be too scary for an archbishop facing seven women all together at once. <laughs> uh, instead, this ambassador has contacted uh, four of the seven women separately asking for individual meetings with them. Mm -hmm. I think it's just that they probably have no idea how to handle this. They don't want to publicly go out and, and be openly misogynistic and say this cannot be tolerated because that would be bad PR. On the other hand, that is how they feel. They, they would never want to appoint a, a female uh, Archbishop of Lyon, for instance. So uh, that's a little bit of a um, pickle that Francis has gotten himself into and we will follow this uh, story as it develops. <laughs> and really one-on-one -on -one meetings with them? Oh, <laughs> I also yes. was like, is it really what you want to do? Ooh, ooh. Mm, I don't know. Mm, and announcing that publicly? Mm, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You're right. I didn't think of that. But yeah. yeah. Did you know that there's also a movement like that in Germany? I did. Yes, I think so. But let tell me more about it. Um, if I remember correctly, they call themselves Maria 2.0, so Mary 2.0. Ooh, <laughs> I like that. Which is pretty bold, but that, good. Yeah, that's catchy. <laughs> and they they pretty much say like, why? Yeah. Every good every question. woman that is in the in the Bible is somehow turned into a bad person, <laughs> and it's like they are saying like we're good enough to care for the old, care for the children, bake cake for every event, <laughs> but we're not good enough to lead. Yeah. And why is that? Yeah. And I think they're like, like the French women, they're, they're raising important points there. <laughs> yeah, go women. Woo. <laughs> yeah, but in some countries, I mean, your country is a good example that a woman leader can be very successful. And I think it sends a good message. But in some countries, one of them is my country. Women are still terribly underrepresented in politics. And we don't even talk about... It's not meaning. even on the map. Yeah. No, it's not on the map for the church. Mm. For the Catholic church, it's definitely not. Yeah. Obviously, uh, some Protestant churches, they do deal with that. They do have women, what are they called? Pastors or ministers? Uh, yeah. We have a Swedish archbishop uh, who is the head of the Swedish church, which is a Protestant church in Sweden. Yeah. So yeah, she's yeah, the highest yeah, yeah. of all oh, that's good. In, in, in Sweden. That's so. cool, yeah. But in your political 
ground, there are lots of women as well, right? Yes, there could still mm. be more, but I would say yeah, yeah. I have, I will take a bold stance and I would say I think in the parliament, I think it's getting to be like 40% women or so. Yes. That's my gut feeling. Like, Of course, I should not say that without Googling it. So I will. If that is true, if that is correct, then it's, I think well, it's, it's on the right way. Getting it, there. Yeah. <laughs> Some say it should be all women because that would make, make every decision such so much more sensible but here in hungary some of the most active politicians especially on the opposition side are women and they are very well spoken they're very intelligent and uh it's refreshing to see them but a lot of people dismiss whatever they say offhand only on the basis of the fact that they are women and as a man, the only thing I can do about it is that I give them as much support as I can. But what's even more necessary to be done is to see more women out there trying. And uh, there is... Yeah, but I think they are trying. It's just that they have to yeah. perform so much better to be accepted. Yes. And, and that's yes. not fair. I looked it up, by the way. It's 46% women in the Swedish wow. parliament. So it's almost 50-50. Well done. Yeah, well done. That's okay. Yeah, really good, Sweden. All right. So <laughs> with regards to the revolutionary changes in the Catholic Church as well, I think what we need to see is more women out there trying, more women out, out there performing and build support around them. And it's also um, like it's a beneficial cycle in a way because it's the more women you see as a girl, the more um, you think that you can do it. Yeah, yes. the, the role models. You have to have a role model. Sort yes, of. Yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Role models are important. Yes. And not only, not, not only for, for female wannabes, <laughs> it's like everyone. We all follow our role models and uh, it's important to have some. Yeah. yeah. Representation with everything is key, like with every diversity we have. <laughs> yeah. We need to see more scientists as well going into politics. That's what I keep banging on about. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So thank you very much, Pontus. Thank you. For poking the pulp once again. And that means that we're moving on to the news. All right. Uh, COVID-19. Let's start by stating that, unfortunately, the pandemic is still not over. Damn. Far from it. Oh, I thought it was over by now. Yes, unfortunately not. If something, it is growing. Uh, by the time this goes out, the number of confirmed cases will have reached 20 million with three quarters of a million deaths, which is a shockingly high number. Yes. Even some European countries are getting back in the ring. Countries try hard to monitor the situation with extensive PCR testing, antibody tests, and even analysing sewage as of late, like in England, where 44 wastewater treatment sites have started the process of regular testing for virus remains. It's the kind of testing that we talked about a couple of episodes ago. You uh, may remember that it happened in, uh, in Spain. In Spain. It stirred yeah. up quite a controversy about when the pandemic reached Europe. And it got such a large amount of criticism. But anxiety around the world is definitely growing. Especially with several new studies showing new lingering issues caused by COVID-19. A recent study from Italy conducted by San Raffaele Hospital in Milan shows that COVID-19 survivors suffer higher rates of psychiatric disorders, including PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, insomnia, and depression. Mm. COVID-19 survivors. So, so it's not because of people stuck at home, not having the ability to go to work and stuff. So it might have something to do with previously published studies that, that showed lingering neurological damage as well. Yeah. Uh, so again, this is not 
influenza. More than half of the 402 people in included in that study suffered from at least one of the uh, above-mentioned issues, disorders and stuff. So that's quite serious. But many expect that the vaccines currently under development will provide a silver bullet to fight the pandemic. However, it is exactly what WHO de uh, General Director Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus warned everyone not to expect while speaking at the organization's headquarters in Geneva on Monday this week. He asked everyone, citizens and governments alike, to be alert, to follow expert recommendations and, quote, do it all. Uh, and I'd like to quote him about something that he said. A number of vaccines are now in phase three clinical trials, and we all hope to have a number of effective vaccines that can help prevent people from infection. However, there's no silver bullet at the moment, and there might never be. And that's an important quote from the general director of WHO. Because when we see all the public outcry against measures to tackle the newly accelerated spread of the virus, it's hard to remain optimistic but with such a thing that he said, it's even harder. But when we're talking about the measures, there is one recurring question that seems to have finally been answered. I mean, there have been several studies that gave an answer to the question whether it makes sense to wear a face mask of any kind. But this is a bit different. Since, since we know that even asymptomatic individuals can infect others, it makes sense. It definitely makes sense but only if it really provides protection against transmission with aerosols. So probably the clearest kind of test-based analysis have been conducted by Australian researchers, uh, and their results were published in the journal Thorax, as well as their video put on social media. They conducted an experiment with people talking, coughing, and sneezing, while wearing no mask at all, wearing two kinds of cloth masks, or a surgical mask. So four different scenarios compared here. They used an LED lighting system to visualize particles that otherwise could not be seen. So the droplets have been shown to be there even when we speak. But when you cough or sneeze, it's much worse. It's been confirmed for a long time. But their studies showed that surgical masks have been found the most effective. But if you wear a cloth mask, make sure you have more than one layers of it, because then it provides quite a good protection. Both probably against incoming infectious agents, but definitely against you unintentionally infecting others. That is the conclusion of their study. And the video that uh, the articles that uh, we will link to include shows it very, very clearly. So I do recommend everyone to see the video because it, it shows how the experiment was done. And uh, it's quite obvious how that it works. So it makes sense. So wear a mask. It's an inconvenience, but it can save lives. And I think this is not the best time to try and invoke your rights to be an asshole. <laughs> your civil liberties are not worth more than someone else's life. Mm. So everyone deal with it yeah. and try to wear a mask, especially when in closed places. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the debate is not even here in Sweden yet. Well, th there is a sort of a debate. I heard a one hour, sorry, half hour a radio program with different interviews with different independent researchers, Swedish researchers. And their conclusion was still that the benefits of masks are so low that it's probably not worth bothering with. Wow. It's really strange because I don't, these are not activists, these are not right wing people, these are sensible scientists 
independently saying more or less the same thing. I'm very confused. I'm very confused. So Sweden, there was one study or not a study, I guess. It wasn't one estimate they cited from Norway. And they said that Norway still has very low numbers. Mm-hmm. And at this point, they said, if you convince 200 Norwegian people to wear a mask, because they don't have this yet, mm-hmm. for one week, they will, in on average, stop one new infection. And they're saying that's not worth it. I'm not trying to make a case here because I'm not yeah. on either side. I'm just hearing so different conclusions from from people that sound very very reasonable and I'm, I'm i'm just confused in germany was also to and fro pretty much and in the beginning the general public thought that masks would help so everybody was buying the surgical masks at, mm-hmm. to a point where the hospitals actually had shortages of that mm-hmm. and they do need that for like the surgeries and everything right. so then they pretty much said oh masks are actually not helping so that people would stop uh, hoarding them um, because the like the the prices went up to the roof <laughs> yeah and then they had the idea of like maybe do-it-yourself masks at home like sew them yourself and then they said like "Mm, well actually they are working so i think for the general public it was pretty confusing Hmm. it was first it's like they're working then they're not working then they're working again but we are pretty much on the on the standpoint now that that it is working like they are working and um even today that my federal country actually decided that we should wear masks in school teachers and students alike right Uh so yeah (laughs) you know it's a precautionary measure and it's all understandable, and uh, we try to communicate that uh, here in Hungary because uh, the authorities don't do enough to make that clear. That at the beginning, when they said that it's not that important, it was all about an inventory management. So there was a shortage of these masks because of the need for it, and people went out and bought them in large batches. Uh, but then production caught up with the demand, and that meant that it's it was no longer an issue. It's no longer an issue as of this moment. But uh, when we talk about the scientific question, whether it works, whether it is worth doing it, it does make sense. So it works. It's been proven to be working. The issue is what you said about Norway. It makes sense that a lot of people find it too inconvenient to prick up this habit because it doesn't really save many lives. But in countries where it happens you have to actually deal with that and you have to have to put up with it. And in my country, the problem is that we don't see that many cases either, mm. but we have been obliged to wear the mask in closed spaces since the beginning. And that means that a lot of people now are against this rule that you have to wear a face mask. So it's difficult from a management point of view, but this thing that I talked about, this is strictly the scientific yeah. question to be answered. Hmm. Yeah, and I had a, I found something that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. It goes into a completely different direction to uh, wearing masks, but maybe it's not that far away because it was about that we should take conspiracy ideas or more like the core of them seriously, but not the conspiracy myths themselves. But it was it's about a video that the Media University of Stuttgart produced and they said that conspiracy myths are a symptom for pretty much not being happy with the status quo, being anxious or afraid or (laughs) angry about the status quo. And they say, that's the thing we should take seriously. So, of course, I would say it's difficult. Well, because they're afraid 
um, because there's fear, most conspiracy believers are not ready for rational arguments. And fear, as we, I think we even spoke about that last week, fear is a big engine for uh, not seeing the rational point in things. And it will just keep them from that. But the, uh, last week, when you talked about the rules of engagement, yeah. exactly. I think it's, it connects nicely to that. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's maybe something, again, that can remind us to, as ridiculous as we might find the ideas, uh, that we maybe can try to be empathic in a way that we see that this person is definitely not happy with the situation yeah 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 i agree i mean it, <laughs> all that you said it's very hard to have rational arguments with somebody who's very emotionally attached to some idea especially then if if you're an authority or representing the government or something which is what you as a conspiracy theorist is mostly you you, you know that they are going to trick you so how are you how are you as a an authority going to convince somebody who is already convinced that you are the devil i mean it's very very hard yeah yeah whatever you say uh, will just reinforce this already existing preconception that you're a devil yeah so. yeah. yeah all right misleading claims on covid uh, we have more of them uh, we have mentioned uh, full fact before the organization who fact checks mm -hmm. claims which is a good thing so here's another story from them that i think is very important there is a viral facebook post that has been making the rounds which implies that the SARS-CoV-2 virus and COVID-19 is much less dangerous than it's made out to be. The post presents some real statistics from the NHS in the UK, in the UK and then make them look like the mortality from COVID-19 is so low that we shouldn't really be scared of it. So it takes one correct number, and that is the official number of deaths from COVID-19 in people in the UK that had no pre-existing conditions. And this is these are numbers from the 16th of July. And that happens to be 1,379. So then this post takes this number, 1,379, and it divides it with the total population of the UK and gets to what the post calls a death rate which is 0.0024%, and which is then used to say that the disease is much more harmless than what everybody else is saying. So this is obviously baloney, but yeah. you, you, can't, you can't calculate it that way. So, so do you see what, what's wrong with it? <laughs> what's wrong with the calculation? The first thing is the death rate is much more complicated. Mm. You could talk about the case mortality rate, but then you have to take into uh, account the number of confirmed cases. That is the basis of the base uh, the case mortality rate. Yeah. So that is something that you can count if you definitely want to eliminate those from the, the equation that have not had previous uh, pre-existing conditions. But you shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the whole thing about looking at people with or without pre-existing conditions... That shouldn't be part then. If if you have to take the whole population as a the, that you divide with, a lot of them do have pre-existing conditions. So yeah. so you 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 are not comparing uh, the same thing here. You should include and also what it says is that there is like twenty eight thousand people in the UK that have died as we record it around that number. So what they're trying to say that. Only 1,000 of them died from COVID and the others only died 
with COVID, which is makes implies it that they would die anyway, and that the COVID didn't make any difference. And that is, of course, nonsense. Because one, you know, one of the complications or pre-existing conditions are is diabetes, mm-hmm. and no, and and you you wouldn't expect that many diabetics to have died during this period if it hadn't been for COVID. No. So you have to calculate with yeah. the pre-existing <laughs> conditions, and and yeah. but it's very deceptive when you take real numbers that are this official number from the NHS, one thousand three hundred and seventy-nine. Then people, even if you try to fact check it, you could go to the NHS and you find the number and say, okay, then it must be real. But it's always more complex than you than you think, and uh, that's the takeaway I think. And I'm glad that we have full fact to look into these things and publish uh, the reasons and analyzing this and telling us why this is the wrong way to to reason. If you if we're talking about statistics, one thing to look look out for is how many years have been lost. Yeah. by the the population and it's quite significant it's because of what you said that a, pe- a person with diabetes can lo- live a full very very long life without any issues uh if the medication is there if the same with uh people with high blood pressure uh with uh, uh, circulatory problems asthma they can <laughs> asthma they can these can be kept in check and People can live a long life with these conditions and uh, COVID does so much damage to these people that they end up dying, whereas normally they would have probably lived another 10, 15, even more years. It it invites also to be very, very selfish. If you say, if you believe, actually not always no, but you believe that you don't have any pre-existing conditions, then you say, well, I don't have to care because it won't happen to me. And that's extremely cynical and selfish to to think that way. But that's how this post invites you to think. And it's one terrible way to find out that you've had pre-existing conditions, right? Well, then it's... you, You get the infection and you end up dying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, I didn't know about that condition. Yeah, well. Yeah, and I also think it's like if they say something like, oh, yeah, it was only a thousand people that died. I'm just like, this is a, a thousand individuals, like a, a thousand families that lost somebody. It's, it's like, this is not a little number. And and they make it out to be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. You're not that's endangered true. at all. Yeah, and a lot of people uh, play the card of these being being very old. They, they would have died in a couple of years anyway. Which is also very cynical. Yeah. Is it really? What are you? You're not human <laughs> if, if you're making that argument. Yeah, no. Come on. We tend to care for our elderly. Yeah. And it's part of what makes us human. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Talking about people who are vulnerable, there is one positive piece of news that I'd like to share with you. On episode 224... You probably remember that I talked about how the Hungarian Competition Authority began scrutinizing a snake oil salesman and his undertaking in a competition supervision proceeding. It looks like they have concluded that the products have no place out on the market. This guy, Gabor Varga, makes a shitload of money with uh, his product line called Varga Peptide. The most important of these products is a skincare spray that contains a chemical called pro-insulin C-peptide. So far, nothing bogus about it. But the claim is that apart from its effectiveness as a cosmetic product, it also cures several diseases and disorders, including several types of cancer, autism, diabetes, 
and of course COVID coronavirus infections. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how how convenient, yeah, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, their ads went really, really far about that. The product is supposed to be, and I quote, excellent for the treatment of coronavirus with a severe outcome. End quote. Was it a severe outcome for the people who used the product, or uh, that's an interesting uh, that's an inter- uh, interesting uh, question? That, that bit ambiguous that, oh, I but <laughs> I don't know. And they are claiming further that the first foreign patient infected with coronavirus in a German-speaking area became asymptomatic within 30 hours of using pro-insulin C peptide. That's this name already is so yeah. It seems to me that they just used like Pro- two scientific terms yes. to scientify the whole name. It's, just yeah, it's like, like a scientific bullshit yeah. generator <laughs> kind of thing. So really, I think that's a clear example of predatory marketing behavior, right? But luckily, the Hungarian Competition Authority came to the rescue and banned the company from advertising this product, as these claims have not been substantiated. And since there is a sense of urgency associated with everything that's related to the current pandemic, the competition authority issued the ban before the end of the investigation, which is quite unprecedented, actually. As since its initiation in May, the investigation started in May, no evidence has emerged that would suggest the claims to hold water at all. So this is the basis on which they made the decision to ban the product. So it was more like a precautionary action. And the rationale behind is the special vulnerability of people looking for an easy fix for their illnesses or simply trying to avoid the, the onset of one like uh, COVID-19. And I'd like to quote a short paragraph from their press release because I think it sums up pretty well why there is a need for such authorities and their decisions to ban quacks and snake oil salesmen from taking advantage of vulnerable people. Quote, Buyers searching for medicinal products represent a special, highly vulnerable group of consumers who, in the hope of recovery, react much more sensitively to advertisements that promise to heal. Given that the decisions of such consumers are predominantly motivated by their desire to benefit from the healing effects attributed to the medicinal product, the consumers are often willing to spend beyond their financial means. Mm. End quote. And I'm sure we can all relate to that. Both the company behind Varga Peptide products and the publishers of their advertisements, including Facebook and YouTube, are now ordered by the uh, competition authority to remove all their commercials from their platforms regarding the product. So this is an example of an authority acting responsibly to stop the madness spreading. It might be a little unexpected for it to come from Hungary. Yeah, I'm surprised. (laughs) But it surely is something that I'm proud of. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Yes. Glad to see that some things are working in Hungary. Exactly. Yeah? Exactly. Independent from the politics of things. Yes, that, that, I think that's that's a must. You have to separate rational things from from politicians. That's right. Right. Okay. More about COVID conspiracy theories. Ah. Yeah. We go to Romania. In Romania, there is now a really a bad case with a lot of. Um, misinformation being spread. Uh, The problem is that prominent campaigners and politicians have been sending anti-vaccine and corona skeptic messages out on their platforms. And of course, on online articles, they have promoted these things and on social media posts. And that means that people are now stopping to follow recommendations and restrictions. And currently now there is about a thousand new daily confirmed cases in Romania. Uh, Some of this misinformation has 
shocker uh, links to Russia. And some really crazy stuff is getting spread very widely. One poll reported that 41% of the people in the poll, I hope it's not 41% of everybody living in, in Romania, they believed that COVID-19 was, quote, a US-made bioweapon, end quote. So not a Chinese made. <laughs> no, for some reason this is the US. I, I don't know. It may be because uh, Gates. May, yeah, maybe because <laughs> Russia has a finger in the spreading of the misinformation. Maybe that's why it's the US. Even several doctors, doctors who are not specialized in in, in COVID nineteen on viruses etc., are apparently arguing against preventive measures. And uh, now the situation is that uh, Romania has over 53,000 confirmed cases, as we recall this. Remember, it increases to 1,000 every day. And they have 2,400 deaths. And uh, this rate is... The trend is absolutely the wrong way. It's accelerating now. It's so sad. Yeah. And and here's a, a real example of what's the harm Right. With people believing in crazy stuff. Here we see the harm. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. It's not like um, harmless people that are just believing ridiculous stuff. It's just like this is harming people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So enough of this pandemic thing. Yeah. But I've got another depressive news uh, for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But is it COVID related? It's not COVID related. <laughs> good. Good. Go ahead. Then. <laughs> uh, it has to do with preying on the vulnerable, though. Yeah. That's why I'm like, it is depressive. Sorry. Because Edzard Ernst talked about the use of a scam, which is his acronym for so-called alternative medicine, by French cancer patients. And France had a survey to investigate the use of scam (laughs) among cancer survivors. And they used that for physical well-being, strengthening their body, emotional well-being, and to relieve side effects. In the study, they actually say, well, these are complementary means of coping with yeah, having cancer or like that you had cancer in the past. Things they used were, for example, homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal medicine and, and diets. Of course. And interestingly, the use of that was very, very often associated with a younger age, a female gender and a higher education level, which is really interesting in my... Right. Yeah, especially the higher education level, I have to say. But th- we've, um, we've seen that before because higher education means most often that you have more money yeah. and you, you can spend on these things. And also, mm. yes. also I think there's been... Uh, and now I'm just taking from my brain here without because I don't remember where I read it and I heard it, but I think I've heard it several times that... If you are highly educated, you also overestimate your own ability to to judge for yourself what is best. Oh yeah, isn't that the Dunning Kruger effect? Uh, yes, in a way, in a way. Part of that, maybe. I think it's yeah. connected, but it's not directly. Yeah. But that, it's probably yeah. like higher educated people fall prey easier, more easily to yeah. to Dunning Kruger effect because I, I'm because so smart, so I cannot be fooled, and that's yeah. why you yeah. get fooled. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I can't see. Yeah. And the other mm-hmm. thing is that probably the more highly educated you are, and the more well off you are in your life, mm-hmm. uh, the more concerned you are with your well being and your lifestyle, the lifestyle you live, and uh, that includes 
trying to get closer back to nature in a way. So everything that is being marketed as natural, as something that builds on your natural ability to heal or something like that, yeah. will be very appealing to you. Yeah. And Edzard um, said that the use of scam, interestingly enough, increases over time and that cancer survivors use extraordinary much of mm -hmm. these uh, alternative medicine. Mm. So, and because it's essentially things that are not working and that are not all not working beyond the placebo effect as it earns says it's probably d due to relentless promotion mm -hmm. so it's exactly what you said Andres, is that it's commercially driven and that they are really promoting that a lot and he says usually people think that big pharma exploits the sick and <laughs> big pharma is doing all of that and that they are pretty much going in the other direction to not support big pharma. But what people don't often don't see and don't know is that um, scam is part of big pharma. Like yeah. most of, for example, in Germany, a lot of German pharmacy companies do have a homeopathy line, for example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like they're part of that. And it's a cheap way of making money. Of course, they yeah. already have <laughs> the, you know, they have the technology to manufacture pills. Yeah. They also have the distribution channels. So of course, yeah. and they don't want to lose. They don't need to conduct uh, clinical trials. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> It's cheap and quick. And and Edward Ernst said it's they behave even worse than like normal big pharma, so to say, he says, because it's super unethical to, as we said, prey on the vulnerable mm -hmm. and to, to make cancer patients pay their last money for sugar pills or uh, essentially sugar or water. Yeah. And the other thing is that big pharma, those pharmaceutical companies are massively regulated, whereas these companies and uh, the snake oil salesmen, they are not. They can do whatever they want to and they always find those little loopholes that they can uh, exploit in order to be able to market market their product. I just hate that because at, at the same time, so obviously, yes, of course, pharmaceutical companies make a lot of money selling products to the vulnerable, to the sick people, but those products must have proof of efficacy yes. in order for them to be registered as medicinal products. And it's not rocket science to understand that, no. actually. And it's not <laughs> like scam products are given away for free either. There's a lot of money in there. Yeah. Some of them are even more expensive. Yeah. I mean, paying money for homeopathic sugar pills, that must be the most expensive sugar you ever buy. Mm. Weight by weight. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Have you ever heard of craniosacral therapy? Yeah. Sounds like head. Sometimes yes, the head. It's, yeah. it's like just uh, manipulating that your head with with the hands, and it's a very gentle kind of thing. It's very pleasant, I hear, mm -hmm. but doesn't cure your cancer. No, no. And they can charge you twenty to thirty euros for an hour mm -hmm. of a visit. Wow. And they don't do anything, and it doesn't do anything. And I only know that unfortunately because one of my sisters went to see one of these practitioners and. I couldn't talk her out of it. She says that she found it very pleasant. It works for me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what she said. Yeah. Well, if it's pleasant, then like take it as a massage, but not as a therapy, so to say. Yeah. 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 If you go, if you do it just because you find it pleasant, that, that's okay, of course. Yeah. But the, the, the thing is, if you get promised that it will cure your cancer or whatever, then, then it's... 
And then came the shocking moment when I decided that, all right, you know what? And I started writing up the Hungarian Wikipedia article for craniosacral therapy. (laughs) And when I started my research, I couldn't find Hungarian sources that were not promoting craniosacral therapy. Mm. So I had to work with the original English Wikipedia article. And I still haven't finished, but uh, do it. I will do that. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. The problem is that I've got so many articles in the making that I haven't finished any in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I know that problem. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to something that I talked about last week. And that was about an article about the, the alleged connection between 5G and coronavirus that got published in a journal that was retracted. Some categorized it as the worst paper of 2020. You remember that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Retraction Watch contacted Pio Conti, editor-in-chief of the Journal of Biological Regulators and Homeostatic Agents. Surprisingly, the editor came back to them and, not so surprisingly, used some well-known excuses for publishing such a shitty paper, saying things like some papers can slip through the net because of them inundated with submissions. I'm saying he wrote back, but it was actually the account supervisor at the financial department (laughs) of the journal, (laughs) the publisher, who wrote in the name of Pio Conti. The latter then brags about the journal's 30 years of history being without a single retraction before this. But based on the investigation of Retraction Watch and science writer Elizabeth Bick, it was not for the lack of papers to retract that they didn't have a retraction, but more like the lack of care. (laughs) <laughs> they, they just didn't bother they just didn't retract them to retract everything <laughs> and after a bit of blah blah about how quickly they reacted when they realized the contents of the paper were based on zero evidence she goes on about the devastating effect of social media on honest publishing companies poor honest publishing companies are being killed by social media i don't know if that was supposed to mean their journal and its publisher but i have a feeling that it would be up for debate so unluckily for them Social media is there to do the job uh, they fail to do with uh, proper peer review. But the unfortunate thing for the rest of us about this is that it also did a lot of damage by releasing bullshit into the wild and letting it spread like wildfire as something that conspiracy theorists can point to. Like, look, here's something that comes from scientists and says what we've known all along. So this is what happened with this. Oh, and it's important to note that not a single retraction notice was posted. It just disappeared, the article, which is not how it's supposed to be done. If a paper gets retracted after publication, it should be indicated as such. Because that's what makes it clear that there was a reason for that to be retracted. Wow. Retraction what's kept banging on the door with that. They are asking whether a retraction notice would be published and got a reply that the notice would appear within a week. So we'll see if that happens. But anyway, kudos to Retraction Watch for not letting this slip. Yeah. By the way, on August the 3rd, Retraction Watch turned 10 years old. Woo. Woo. The blog started with two accomplished researchers and since then the team has welcomed as many as seven more people uh, doing the important work of looking out for papers, retracting and providing an analysis of uh, why the retractions occurred. Well done. Keep up the brilliant work and happy 10th anniversary to the staff. Happy birthday. And if you want to help them in their quest for making scientific publications more reliable, you can check out their page about how you can support Retraction Watch. 
Yeah, moving on to a topic that we probably all know. Did you ever have neck pain? Pain in your neck. (laughs) I have one now, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's very common, actually. (laughs) Especially with elderly people, (laughs) (laughs) Pontus. I would say with people that sit more than they walk. (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> uh, if I meet such a person, I will warn them. <laughs> <laughs> Good. An old person, you mean? <laughs> yes. Make sure you do. Make sure you do. <laughs> yeah, and because Edzard Ernst was very busy this week, and he posted an entry about spinal manipulation and um, if that's helpful against chronic neck pain. Mm. Is it? Well, let's see. <laughs> so he says a lot of scam which we already know is so-called alternative medicine, exists to to help with chronic neck pain. And there was a study that wanted to find out which treatments can be effective. And they had three groups. One was manual therapy, so like massages. Another one was, was um, therapeutic exercise, so movements. <laughs> and the third group was a sham treatment. So pretty much where they put only, I think it was described as putting their hands on the neck and then they just say something or so. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was, like magic. it was really meant to to get the placebo effect. So like that you can... Thoughts and prayers. Yeah, exactly. That you can see um, which one is the control group. So mm-hmm. yeah, he said... What he liked about it is that they um, described everything very in very good detail. What which he didn't like is that they had a very small sample size, so you can't really deduct a lot of that from that. But what this uh, the study fa- found out and what Edzard Ernst summarized it as was that spinal manipulation. Um, doesn't seem to be the best therapy. So exercise is actually cheaper and there's less potential for harm there. So exercise is actually a bit better than than spinal manipulation and like really pressing into things. Hmm. Who would have thought? Does it make you happy or unhappy? Happy, happy. I remember uh, out of the blue, I had a neck pain many, many years ago once and I had a golf appointment with some friends. And I was almost not going because I, I was in such pain that I, I will not be able to, to even lift the club. But for some reason, I said, well, what the hell, I'll try it. And I went there and after a few holes, like, you know, maybe I had I hit the ball maybe 10 or 15 times uh, over the co- in the beginning of the course. And then um, I was cured. Ooh. Anecdote. Anecdote, I know. So, (laughs) anecdotal evidence. (laughs) Golf can cure your neck pain. That is the conclusion. I will now sell golf (laughs) (laughs) training courses for uh, in in with medical claims. Yes. Oh, really good. (laughs) Good. You you, you found yourself a new venture. (laughs) Yes. Right. Because it worked for me once. So (laughs) that's how we prove things in the scam business. So Pontus (laughs) is the now new guru now. (laughs) That's right. All right. More about fake news i think um lots of times we have heard about uh, facebook and other social media that are promise promising to take measures to flag or remove fake facts from their platforms and of course that's a huge task i i don't envy them that because that's not easy and, and because it's not easy they have to take help uh, Facebook currently are collaborating with about 50 organizations across the world in 40 different languages. And, and that's not something that we hear so much about, I think. They just can't do all of the work 
uh, on their own because it's such a huge problem. In Ukraine, uh, Facebook has a deal with a rather small organization since April this year, and it's called Stop Fake. Uh, but especially in Ukraine, there is a lot of partisan sentiments, especially you're either probably, you don't have a choice there. You have to be either pro or against Russia. That That's the deal there. Yeah. Now Stopfake has come under criticism, being accused for being right wing and biased in what they flag or remove from Facebook. And these accusations come mainly from a Ukrainian news outlet called Saborona. Uh, and they cited photograph of a prominent stop fake member meeting with nationalist figures, uh, including a white power rock musician whose lyrics deny the Holocaust. So not not the kind of company you want to be caught uh, fraternizing with. Definitely not. Yeah. So, but this has become a big thing, and it's developed into uh, a, a crazy situation now, where the editor of Saborona, the whistleblower here, Katerina Sergotskova, had to flee the country because she said she had received so many death threats uh, because of this thing. And Stopfake, in turn, to their credit, has denied... No, well, first of all, they denied any ties to right-wing groups or, or sentiments, but they also condemned these death threats, saying that it was unacceptable. So Stopfake have a list of uh, the about 200 fact checks that they have made, uh, which have led them to make take actions. And they have these listed on their website. And according to the New York Times, they appear to be mostly legit. Most of them are regarding false coronavirus claims, of course. And then a smaller number of cases concern pro-Russian misinformation. So the question is, who the hell, who or what the hell is wrong here? Are they being right wing or not? And what, what what is happening? It's just a mess. And I'm not in a position to judge whether Stopfake has any right wing ties at all. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But it seems at least that the flagging and the removal of uh, Facebook posts that they have managed is okay, at least according to the New York Times. So I, I don't have a conclusion here. I don't know who's the bad guy. <laughs> uh, and maybe maybe it's not like black and white, but it's an interesting look into the difficulties that players like Facebook are up against. Uh, it certainly isn't easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say the people who, who threatened the editor are definitely bad. Yes, <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, it's, yes. not, it's not how you deal with that. Yeah, that's, no. that's And that could sure. probably be some right-wing people. I wouldn't be surprised. But whether they do it because of to defend uh, stop fake or why they do it, we, we, I guess we don't know. It makes you think about how difficult it is to find the right partner for, for, for companies like Facebook uh, to fact-check the content. Because how do you define a good fact-checker? How do you evaluate their fact-checking potentials and their fact-checking ability and their impartialness? Yeah. Who, who fact-checked the fact-checkers? Yeah. Uh, that's the problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. it's, it's a difficult question. And who fact-checks them? Yeah. And this is, this is why a lot of people... I do understand how a lot of people distrust the system of fact-checking mm -hmm. in general. Because and this they, doesn't help, this story. No. This definitely doesn't help. No, it's true. 
Okay, I think it's only understandable that I'd like to finish <laughs> the news segment with something positive and scientifically cool. Woo. Stonehenge. That can't be news, right? <laughs> that must be a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stonehenge. But it is probably the most recognized megalithic structure in Europe, and its history spans more than 5,000 years. It stands in the middle of nowhere in the south of England, as you may know, and it's been a frequent tourist destination, a place where I often take tourists myself and love talking about it uh, have you ever seen that in person i mean not me not me talking about it but no i i know <laughs> I, I wonder why i haven't i've been to england many times so uh, i i mm -hmm. that's i have something i've not done mm -hmm. <laughs> i should do it uh yeah i certainly recommend visiting it uh, although some people tend to think of it especially after the visit as something not worth visiting mm -hmm. why i think it's only because they don't appreciate art how awesome it is and mm. how old it is and all the different questions that it brings up one of the reasons why i love talking about it is because it's also a source of all kinds of myths legends conspiracy theories and even alien stories well you can imagine that I don't specifically like to indulge in talking rubbish to my clients but it can be quite educational uh, to talk about those and one can try to spread a bit of doubt about the silliest ideas as well so this is why i like these stories it brings up the opportunity to educate and there are some seriously entertaining stories out there to be honest even erich von deniken wrote a of book course it about did. it <laughs> <laughs> uh, about how uh, it's it was built by aliens claiming that they build a structure for ancient humans who would not have been able to move and lift those boulders, some of which weigh as much as 30 to 32 tons, metric tons. That's impressive. So really good, really big ones. Giants are frequently mentioned in stories about how it was built as well. But it's not only its construction that remains a mystery. The function is still not clear either. So whenever researchers manage to say something definitive or as close to certain as scientifically possible, it makes the headlines. This time, it's quite a significant part of the long-lived questions that finally got an answer. Namely, the origin of the largest boulders that can be found on the site. It was Pluto. Pluto. Yes. That's the answer. It was aliens all <laughs> along. Yeah. It, it was. <laughs> yeah, we just didn't know it. Lithologically speaking, there are three types of rocks that Stonehenge is made of. Massive boulders of sarsen, a specially silicified kind of sandstone. It is very sturdy, very big. Normal sandstone is present as well, and igneous rocks called bluestones. Neither of these can be found directly around the spot where the structure was built. So this is one of the basis for all the different conspiracy theories and different uh, weird ideas as to how they got there. In the last decade, however, researchers identified the place of origin for the bluestones, which were from some 200 kilometers to the west from Stonehenge. But these are the smallest ones, so it's a bit easier to get them there. Or it was. Based on crystal analysis and, and the knowledge of the geology of the area, the sandstone boulders have been tracked to eastern Wales as well. Now, the origin of the largest ones, the Sarsens, of which there were originally 80, but now only 52 remain, have remained a mystery up until now. So the largest ones, the greatest mystery of all. How did those big boulders of 30 tons got there? <laughs> Researchers from four universities in the UK published a paper in Science Advances that was issued on the 29th of July. So it's pretty recent. 
And they explained the amazing journey to this discovery. They managed to show a match of the chemical composition of the sarsens to similar boulders found at Westwoods near Marlboro, some 25 kilometers north of Stonehenge. So it's still quite a distance, but it's not that large a distance. In order to do this, a core sample was analyzed that had been extracted back in 1958, but all 52 samples were examined with an PXRF, a very cool piece of uh, equipment. Um, it's a portable X-ray fluorescent spectrometer. So it was an, an all a non-invasive kind of analysis, which is brilliant. I love that. I've, I've seen people analyze the chemical composition of oil paintings with these devices. And it's not too much unlike being in a Star Trek movie with someone handling a tricorder. It's, <laughs> I was thinking it's really amazing. So this is like science fiction meets science. And th th uh, with the rock and roll kind of transportation system, you know, when you put down logs and you put the rock on it and you start rolling it. Uh, and this is what it's called, rock and roll. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not my joke. I saw it at uh, one of these um, museums. It was probably at uh, Stonehenge, actually. So with that kind of transportation system, that was widely available at the time. It was a gigantic task, but not impossible to take the boulders from their site of origin to the site of construction. So take that, Daniken. There are still two of the boulders, however, that don't match with the rest in their in their composition. And they are from Pluto. Exactly. So <laughs> who the hell knows where those come from? So yeah. some of the mystery remains, but it's always like that with scientific discovery. Lots of questions answered, but many more remain. I have an observation. Yeah. If they know there were 80 of these things there to begin with, yeah. and now there are only 53 left or something like that, that means... You can move them because some of them have gone missing over time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but most of them were, well, extracted and uh, taken away in the 20th century, actually. Oh, really? Bloody bastards. So up until the beginning of the 20th century, it was on a private land. Ah. So I think it was in 1918 or something when it became the property of the state. Mm. So wow. before that, some things, some artifacts there were just up for grabs <laughs> wow and uh yeah like the berlin wall <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should do an esp class trip to there oh yeah yeah okay yeah good if anyone wants to sponsor that trip live uh, recording from the stonehenge <laughs> with ethereal singing in the background <laughs> yes oh yeah yeah we can sing duets as well yeah so just register on our patreon and <laughs> <laughs> and say that you want to sponsor our class trip. <laughs> yeah, finally, we've got a, a singer, another singer on the team, because Pontus, is, for some reason, is not willing to sing duets with me. <laughs> uh, I've been trying. You're not pretty enough. That's the problem. I know, I know. <laughs> Pontus can do the percussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And play the guitar. <laughs> and he knows a lot of Beatles songs yeah. by heart. Yeah, we'll be a, a, it'll be a full hippie convention there at stonehenge at with, stonehenge definitely yeah, smoking pot <laughs> and uh, yeah i'm in yeah all right okay we just need to uh organize the tour and wait for covid19 to go yeah away. let's first cancel the pandemic and then <laughs> yes that's yeah. right yes uh but that means that we are at the end of our news segment uh, so i really wanted to do this uh at the end so we finish on a positive note so <laughs> on a positive note we're moving on to the next segment when we find out who's been really wrong 
Yes. Speaking of cancelling the pandemic, we we all hate it, right? We we all wish it was all nonsense and that people could couldn't get sick and that no one had to worry and no one had to die from this bloody virus. We wish we could all go back to normal again, to travel again, maybe to Stonehenge and to hug our friends and shake their hands. That would be great. <laughs> but you know what? The real world doesn't care what you want. You cannot wish things to be different. Going into denial doesn't help. And this weekend, we saw lots of demonstrations in, in Germany, mostly in Berlin, by people who believe that they can change the facts of life just by pretending that it's all fake. And uh, they pretend it, they pretend it so successfully that they convince themselves, or at least they convince others. So, uh, police estimates that there were around 17,000 demonstrators in Berlin. Uh, I think it was on Saturday. Ooh. And of course, they're all over the map. Some are saying the restrictions are not justified and they're trying to be at least a little bit rational. Others saying that it's all a hoax. There's no pandemic at all. There's no virus. It's all a lie. And... What all of them do agree on, though, is that it's all illegal. Someone has taken away their civil rights and uh, no one can force them to wear a mask or to or force them to get vaccinated, which is a little premature because there is no vaccine yet. And there is actually no decision about any mandatory vaccination, at least not yet. It may come to that, of course. We'll see. And, and, and then they also go on and lie about the event itself, the demonstration. There are claims that there were over a million participants there, which is, of course, ridiculous. Uh, 17,000 people is not millions of people or a million people. And as I said, I get it. I, I get that you don't like the fact that we have this mess going on, but insisting that it is not real doesn't help anyone. So, uh, and it's not just that. They also go out of their way to break all protocol uh, that we have. They are not wearing masks. They are standing too close together, etc. As if that is a brave and brilliant thing to do. And uh, they're, they're, it's like crossing a, a street blindfolded just to prove a point. And there are so many dumb ways to die. And this is just one of them. And this makes me think about this song. Perhaps you will recognize it. I love it. It's so catchy. It's really, really great. And uh, you should check it all out. I think it's from Germany, isn't it? Originally? I can't really tell you that. I don't remember now, but um, look it up. But so for refusing to accept the facts and the world as it is, and actually trying to fight reality instead of putting that in energy into fighting the pandemic, all these protesters get today's prize for being really wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well-deserved. Well-deserved again. Put your energy where it really makes a difference and where it can help. The song is from Australia. I just oh, okay. uh, looked it right. up. <laughs> okay. That reminds me of how difficult it will be for me to uh, try and adhere to all the recommendations and regulations while traveling across oh. the Baltic states, because it looks like it's not going to be cancelled. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a little bit worried, to be honest. My understanding is that the Baltic states do not 
have recommendations that you have to wear a mask. Yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's how it is. And not that bad as long as the things stay as they are now. Because uh, in those countries, the case numbers are very, very low. And uh, it looks like they are handling the situation quite well. But my worry is that I will be traveling through Poland, which is showing a fast growing number of new cases every day. Uh, more than 500 cases per day, new cases. Yeah. And I'm, I'm about to travel through the country with about 30 tourists. <laughs> yeah. Which brings me to the call again. So if there is someone from either in the northeast of Poland or any of the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia or Estonia, and would like to meet up with a Hungarian guy eager to meet skeptics from that area please get in touch. You can get in touch with us uh, on the usual ESP channels, uh, like on our website, on um, Twitter, on Facebook, or write an email to us at info at theesp.eu. Or you can write directly to me at andrash at theesp.eu. So I would really appreciate you uh, sending a message because it would be great to, first of all, to find out what's going on in those countries. We have interviewed someone from Lithuania, Uh, not too long ago, but with the other two Baltic states, we have no idea what they have to offer for skeptics. So I would really love to find it out. Yeah, so uh, I am going very soon next week, so I probably won't be able to uh, join you guys uh, for the next episode. But I don't have much of a choice, really. I haven't worked since March, and um, if the company decides to send a grip, I'm not in the position to say no to a work. Yeah, take what you get. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so who knows when the next tour will be that I can go on. So that basically concludes the show. But before we go, I'd like to share a quote with you. And that quote comes from who else than a Polish engineer, a mathematician and philosopher, most famous for creating the theory of general semantics. The name is Alfred Korzybski. And the quote goes like this. Humans can be literally poisoned by false ideas and false teachings. Many people have a just horror at the thought of putting poison into tea or coffee, but seem unable to realize that when they teach false ideas and false doctrines, they are poisoning the time-binding capacity of their fellow men and women. Oh, mm-hmm. poisoning the time-binding capacity of their fellow men and women. Yes, that's right. Ah, well put. <laughs> well put. This is the exact reason why teachers in their in their lessons have to stay pretty neutral. Yeah. Mm. To not poison their students, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally, it's uh, enough to poison them with the facts, right? Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah. It can have very terrible effects as well if you <laughs> learn about the facts. Like education. <laughs> All right. (laughs) That would lead very far if we went into that conversation. Uh, So that means that uh, the show has come to an end. And I'd like to thank both of you, Onika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd like to thank the listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis lat. This has been your ESP experience. 
The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast. We didn't clap yet. <laughs> oh, fuck me. <laughs> Number two, three, four. Somehow, what? The number of the show. I don't know if that means anything or if it's even interesting, (laughs) but just notice. (laughs) Yeah, I doubt that it's even interesting, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, if we get to one, two, three, four, we have to have a big party, right? Oof. Yes. (laughs) One, two, three. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. That's what I'm after. (laughs) Okie dokie. And these accusations come mainly from a Ukrainian news outlet that was Ukrainian. <laughs> <laughs>